Oh, good morning. Some light Sunday morning reading for you. So good to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. And we're in a series called Warrior Poet about the life of David. And if you're curious, no, we're not going to actually talk about David today, which makes six weeks in a row that we haven't talked about David. Uh, we're taking the scenic route, and we will get there next week. We will actually get to the life of David next week. But you can't understand that until you get to this spot that we're in. Uh, some of you may have heard of this book. I don't know if you've heard of this. Three Cups of Tea, One Man's Mission to Promote Peace, One School at a Time. It was written by a guy named Greg Mortison. And the title of the book comes from his experience in a village where uh, if you have one cup of tea with someone in the village, then you're a stranger. If you have a second cup of tea with that person, uh, then you become uh, dear friends. And if you have a third cup of tea with that person, you are now treated as family. This is a fascinating book that recounts the story of this man, Greg Mortison, where he, on his way down from climbing K2, if you know anything about climbing, K2 is actually harder than Everest. Climbers will say it's the hardest mountain that you can climb. He was on his way down from K2 when he got lost, and he stumbled into this village, and he was so struck by the poverty in the village and the need that they had for schools and for education, that he actually made a promise to him. He said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to build schools for you. Then he was captured by the Taliban and he was held hostage for a little bit. And then eventually he was released by the Taliban and and wrote his experience down in this book, Three Cups of Tea, and traveled the world kind of sharing the story and raising funds for uh, education in this part of the world. And this became a New York Times bestseller. It was on the list of New York Times bestseller for four years in a row. He sold millions and millions of copies. In fact, when President Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize, he actually donated $100,000 of his money to that organization. The only problem with this whole story is that he never actually tried to summit K2, He was never captured by the Taliban and held hostage. And most of the money that he raised did not go to building schools, but went into his own pockets. And he was able to fly around the world in very expensive private jets. And as this was exposed, it was realized that there was financial mismanagement at every level of his organization. This is bizarre. It actually came out in an expose called Three Cups of Deceit the ugly side of the human ego. And the fallout of this was tragic. The fallout was that his co-author committed suicide by kneeling in front of a train. His daughter attempted to take her own life due to the shame that she experienced as this went viral and public. And he almost died of heart failure due to the stress of this whole situation. And it's crazy because if you, if you read about this guy, Greg, what you realize is that this guy, he doesn't have, he's not struggling with a mental illness. He's not some perverse, wicked person. He was a normal, average, decent guy. And somewhere along the way, his ego and these unsettled caverns in his soul started to stir up and they got out of control. And here's the question that I want to ask with you today. How does that happen? How does that happen? How do you go from being a decent normal person, and your life is on a normal trajectory, to then blowing up your life? 
How do you go from uh, not someone who's just pervasively wicked at every level, but someone that is generally trying to live in a right and good way, and yet you wake up one day and you realize that you've slipped into embarrassing, private, moral sin, and it's creating chaos in your life? How do we not do that, is the question. And I don't know about you, but the older that I get, the older that I get, the more my one hope, my one desire is that I will finish well. That's my one hope. I, I want to love Jesus when I die. I want to be friends with my wife, and I want to know my kids. And if I don't do anything else in life, then that's okay, but those are the things that I want to do. I want to finish well, and I don't know if you feel this, but it feels like that's becoming harder and harder to achieve uh, the more we watch people around us blow up their lives, right? How do we not do that? Well, one of the reasons why we're studying this book is because we see in Israel's very first king kind of a case study, a character study, if you will, of what happens when you have some cracks in your character that over time go unaddressed and those cracks become caverns that eventually expose you and you slip into tragic moral failure and sin. We're going to look at uh, the, the life of King Saul and some of the ways that he started out good. But he had some unchecked pride. He had some unchecked ego. He had some unchecked insecurities. He had some unchecked uh, ways that he was self-deceiving. And those things, as they went unchecked, eventually led not just to his rise, but eventually to his fall. So that's where we're headed. We're going to study uh, the life of Saul today in First and Second Samuel, the rise of King Saul. Uh, b- before we get there, what we have to do is just kind of remind you of where we've been. We left off the story last week in First Samuel chapter 8, and this is the part of the story where the people of God, they begin to cry out to God for a king. And, it, and it's bizarre, it's bonkers, because if you've tracked the story up to that point, there's no need that they need a king. They don't have uh, any need for a king because God, Yahweh, is their king. He's the one fighting their battles, and yet in a tragic act of rejection, they come to God and they say, we don't want you to be our king, we want a king like all the other nations that's going to go out and fight our battles for us. And God's response is to basically give them what they really want. It's not always good when God gives you what you really want. And in this story, he gives them what they really want. And this starts out really, really great. Let me read it to you. So uh, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharoth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here's what you have with Saul. You have this handsome, tall, strong-looking leader. He looks like a king. Like if you just walk into a room and you could pick just who should be king here, this guy looks like he should be king outwardly. He's pretty impressive. Handsome, tall, strong. But it's not just outwardly. He's actually impressive inwardly as well. There's things about Saul that are really noteworthy. Like here's the first thing we're told about Saul. His dad lost the donkeys, which is a 
must be a common problem in ancient Israel. I don't know. Uh, but lost the donkeys, and he says, hey, Saul, I need you to go find the donkeys for me. Now, Saul just immediately gets up and drops what he's doing, and he runs to go find the donkeys. And you might be thinking, well, that's just a random fact. It's a random tidbit. Why did the author put that in there? Well, here's why. Because Saul is the first person in this story, the first son in the story, to listen and obey his father's voice. Every other son up to this point has been disobedient. You have the sons of Eli, the high priest, who are wicked and sinful, Hophni and Phinehas. By the way, if you're pregnant with twin boys, just some options for you. Think about it. Hophni and Phinehas, it's strong. And, and then you get to Samuel, the prophet. Samuel's awesome. And yet Samuel's sons are disobedient. And so Saul is the first person in this story that is a son who listens to his father's voice and obeys. Pretty impressive. And then, as the story unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 9, he stumbles across Samuel the prophet while searching for his father's donkeys. Samuel comes to Saul and he says, Hey Saul, I've got news for you. I know you're not expecting this, but God has chosen you to be king of Israel. What? Chosen me? Yes, he's chosen you to be king of Israel. He gives him all these instructions. He anoints him as king in chapter 10. Things are going great. And then when, when he becomes king at the very end of chapter 10, what's bizarre in this story is that uh, he, he's, he's terrified of the office of king and he's actually in humility. He's hiding out by the baggage because he doesn't think he has what it takes. So he's not this arrogant, prideful guy. He's like really humble, hiding out. And he actually has to have people come to him and say, hey, it's okay. God has chosen you for this office. He will be with you. So Saul becomes king of Israel. As soon as he becomes king, the first test of his kingship comes across his, his table. In chapter 11, uh, the Philistines, who are kind of the age-old enemy of the people of Israel, the Philistines attack the people of Israel, and not all of them, but a small village called Jabesh-Gilead. And, and, and the guy that is attacking is the leader of the Ammonites, and his name is Nahash. Nahash in Hebrew literally means serpent. So here's a guy that means serpent. If you read the story, he's kind of like a villain from The Walking Dead. Like that's the feel that you get. He's, he's not a good dude. And he's threatening to basically gouge out all the eyes of all the men in Israel if, if they don't turn themselves over. It's like I'm either going to kill you or I'm going to gouge out your eye and you're going to become our servants. Saul hears about this. He rallies the people of Israel. They go to battle. And in one of the most epic battle scenes in the Old Testament, they completely dominate the Ammonites. They defeat them. And, and Saul is seen as this victorious king. The, the way that chapter 11 ends is fantastic. It's like everybody's applauding. But Saul had a few critics that didn't think he had what it take had what it takes to be king. So the people of Israel are like, where's those critics? Bring them out. Let's kill them. And Saul goes, no, 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 let's have mercy, let's have compassion. So just track with me here for a second. Think about Saul. Saul is this amazing leader. He's tall, he's handsome, he comes from a good family, he has integrity, he's humble, he's, he's godly, he's courageous and brave, and he goes to battle when it counts. He shows mercy and compassion when it counts. This is a great king. Chapter 12, Samuel stands up and he gives a farewell speech and he says, you no longer need me as your leader. Saul is now your leader and I'm just going to serve as your prophet. And Saul sends the majority of his army home and he says, we're at peace right now, guys. Let's just enjoy it. You would expect to open up chapter 13 and be like, what a great story. And they lived happily ever after. 
But you open up chapter 13, and this is the first snapshot to these cracks in Saul's character that go unaddressed that eventually lead to his demise. So chapter 13, pick it up in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. It's like, oh, they're back at it again? Yes. This is the story of First and Second Samuel. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Listen to this. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks, and look at this, and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Let me give you some context here and kind of help you understand what's happening in the story. Have you ever seen one of those battle scenes? Uh, Think Lord of the Rings. I have a photo, actually, where the army is surrounded by a horde. That's what this felt like to be Israel right now. The Philistines are like, all right, you beat us at Jabesh Gilead. We're going to come back with a crazy amount of, of troops, and we are going to dominate you. Saul had sent the majority of the army home, so they have, they have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, whereas the Israelites only have 3,000 people, and they feel overwhelmed. In fact, the men are terrified. They're literally jumping in tombs to hide. Like, you know you're scared if you're like, is there a casket nearby that I could climb into and just hide out in this casket with that dead body? Like, that's, they are basically saying, we're as good as dead. They're trembling and they're terrified. Now, he, here's, here's a couple things that you need to know about this story. One, this is exactly what God prefers with his army. He wants his army to feel completely overwhelmed and completely like outnumbered because he never ever wants them to think that it's their strength and power that is the reason for their victory, right? He wants them to always be drastically outnumbered so that when they win, they realize that this was only God and his power that caused us to have the victory. So you see this all throughout the story. You see it in the Exodus, where the people of Israel don't lift a finger, and yet God somehow supernaturally brings them out of slavery, and Egypt defeats the entire Egyptian army. You see this with Gideon. Gideon has his army whittled down to 300 men, and they take on 130,000 men and are powerful over that army. And then you see this again in 1 Samuel 7, where the, the Israelites didn't have to lift a finger. God just thunders against the Philistine army, routs them, and they're defeated. So the Israelites are freaked out, but they've forgotten their own narrative. They've forgotten their own story. It's like, no, this is where God wants you. He wants you outnumbered. He wants this to feel overwhelming because he wants your complete trust in his ability to have the victory, not in your own strength. And yet Saul gets nervous. Saul gets terrified. Samuel had told Saul, he says, Saul, I don't want you to act. I don't want you to go to war. I don't want you to do anything until I show up. He even gave him directions. He says, I'm going to show up in seven days. Give me seven days. On the seventh day, I'm going to arrive. And when I arrive, I'm going to make a sacrifice to God because I'm a priest. So on behalf of the people, I'm going to sacrifice to God. And then God is going to give us directions on how to fight against the Philistines. That was what was supposed to happen. But notice what Saul does instead. Look at verse 8, chapter 13. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. By the way, he's not allowed to do that because he is a king, not a priest. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, don't you love what the author's doing here? Samuel came, perfect timing. And Saul went out to meet him and he greeted him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, listen to the deceit in his voice. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I didn't really want to do it. I forced myself to do it. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The very first thing that we see happen in Saul's life, the very first character flaw that starts to get exposed is Saul's impatience and his excuses. Now this might not seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal. His impatience. What's happening here is Saul waits seven days and on the seventh day, it's probably the morning of the seventh day, he looks around and he's like, oh my gosh, My army is scattering from me. I'm outnumbered by the Philistines. I just came off of a powerful victory. I'm about to look like a fool here. I don't know what's going to happen. And I need to basically do this ritual act to receive the blessing of God so that I can go out to battle and have victory. And so what Saul does out of impatience and out of presumption is he stands up and he makes sacrifices. He runs in a lane that he was, a, he was never meant to run in, all out of fear, responding out of fear rather than faith and trust and the power of God. His impatience led him to act in ways that he was not supposed to act. Now, do you see what he's doing here? It's something that you and I do all the time. It's out of fear, we presume upon God and we act in all of these ways that we shouldn't act. And then what we do is we do some ritual thing to secure the blessing of God on the sinful decision that we have made. Like, I'm going to make the sinful decision. It's rash. I never should have made it. But now I'm going to pray that God blesses the sinful decision that I've made. And as soon as that happens, Samuel shows up and he goes, what have you done? And right when Samuel starts to confront Saul, rather than Saul admitting his failure and admitting his impatience and admitting his lack of trust, what Saul does is he quickly goes to excuse making. He, he, I don't know if you caught this, but he, he blame shifts very quickly. He goes, you did not come when you said you would. Which, by the way, is a lie, because he did. He just didn't come when Samuel when Saul thought he would. On the seventh day, he showed up. You didn't show up in the time that I thought you would. And then he blames the the Israelites. He says, they were scattering from me. And then he blames the Philistines. They were gathering a force against me. And instead of owning his mistake and his sin and his failure, he actually turns the the shift of blame on someone else and not on himself. Now, when you read the story, it's eerily similar of Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? If you're not familiar with Genesis 3, it's the story of Adam and Eve when they sin, and God shows up to Adam and he goes, what have you done? And Adam goes, 
It was the woman that you gave me. So it's really your fault, God, for giving her to me because she was the one that tricked me. And then he goes to the woman and she's like, it was the snake. The serpent made me do it. And it's just blame shifting after blame shifting, making excuses. And as a result of Adam's failure, he's removed as king of the Garden of Eden. And he's exiled from the kingdom of God. And he lost his ability to reign and rule in the way that God desired him to lead. That is a repeat of what's happening to Saul in this story. Not much has changed from Genesis 3 to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And here's what's really crazy. Not much has changed from 1 Samuel 13 to 2019. Saul's story is our story. You and I live in a high-speed internet, microwave, same-day Amazon shipping culture. It is very hard for us to be patient about anything, right? Especially about things that God has called us to or put in front of us. And often what we do is we respond out of fear, looking at our circumstances. And it's almost like the reality of who God is, we become functional atheists. We no longer have any sort of trust in his power or ability to come through for us. And we look at what's happening around us and out of fear, not faith, we presume upon God and we respond to make decisions with impatience. And this leads us to places that we often don't want to go. It creates more anxiety and stress. So then we go to God and we ask him to bless our sinful decisions that we have made. I see this happening in our church. I see this happening in our own lives. It happens often with relationships. It's like, man, I just don't trust that God is going to bring this relationship to my life and my biological clock is ticking. And so I'm going to manhandle this situation in my own strength and power. I'm going to go find a relationship, maybe make some compromises that I shouldn't make. And then once I get into that relationship that I shouldn't be in in the first place, I'm going to just ask God to bless this thing. I see this happening with uh, sexual sin and uh, cohabitation, right? Which is super popular to talk about in church, right? But it's just this thing of like, well, I just, I, I can't trust that this marriage is going to work. So before I commit to this marriage, what I'm going to do is engage this person as if we were married. We will play house. We will sleep together. We'll share the same room and all these other things. And we'll just test out the waters and see how this thing goes. And then as that unfolds, we just ask God, please bless me in this and bless this relationship. Listen, sex is a great thing. Amen? It's okay to say amen to that. Um, some of you are like, I don't know if I should say amen. Right? Um, it's, it's a, it's, God created that. He gave it to us as a gift. It's a great thing. Marriage is a great gift. Right? But when you take those two gifts and you twist and distort them in your own strength and power, it never leads you to a life of thriving and joy and more of what God intends for you. It always leads to more anxiety and chaos and dysfunction. And so this is what we do often. We do this in marriage when things are not working out, our spouse isn't changing as quickly as we want them to. We bail. And then we ask God to bless our divorce. And listen, I get that there are a few biblical reasons for divorce. There are. But there's a lot of things that happen where we just presume upon the character of God and we look at our circumstances, we freak out and respond in impatience and fear rather than faith. We are Saul, are we not? We do this with finances where we're stressed about our money, our stuff, and so we either spend more than we have just to kind of fill some void, or we run out and overwork in our lives to try to get the lifestyle that we want and 
At the end of the day, what we're living is functional atheists where God is saying, I want to fight your battles. I want to be the one that you run to. I want to provide. And yet we do what Saul did, which is, I can't trust you. I've got to manhandle this thing on my own strength. And then we make excuses as we get called out on those things. So that's the first character flaw that we see in Saul. It goes left unchecked. And you might not think it's a big deal, but these are small cracks that eventually lead to caverns in Saul's life. And you have to understand that to understand the rest of the story. The next snapshot and the final one I want to look at with you is in chapter 15. It's the text that we read this morning together. So look at chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." Now, what is going on here? If you read this story, and hopefully you've been tracking along with this series throughout the week, but if you read this story, if you're anything like me, you get to a section of verses like this, and you're like, what is happening? Is God a bloodthirsty carnivore? Is that what's happening here? Is he guilty of genocide? What is going on in this text? And, and, and there's a lot of things that we could say about this, but we just don't have time. So I'm going to give you a few things that might help you. But if you have questions about this passage, you can email hello at frontlinechurch.com and we will provide you with some helpful resources to understand this and other hard-to-understand passages in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, okay? So here's just a couple things on this. Number one, this is ancient trash talk language. You have to understand ancient uh, language. In the, in the ancient Near Eastern context, this is just ancient trash talk language. And it was a euphemism that was commonly used to not literally say every man, woman, child, infant. Ought, ought. It's saying just kill the entire army. Like why, be victorious and wipe out the army. Wipe out the army. This would be like a common day version of and the thunder annihilated the nuggets. You wouldn't hear that and be like, oh my gosh, we literally annihilated people, right? From Denver, we annihilated, no, that's a euphemism. We know what we mean when we say it. Or, or oh, you wiped the floor with Texas, right? Which, by the way, we didn't quite wipe the floor with Texas, but we, we did beat them. Uh, but it's like, you know, if I say, oh, you beat Texas, we don't think they went out and literally beat them. We know what we mean. It's a euphemism. This is ancient trash talk language. It means kill the army, right? Kill the whole army. Number two, the... Uh, Amalekites were essentially ancient terrorists. When you read about ISIS or, uh, you know, modern-day terrorists, uh, these were ancient terrorists. They were known for their atrocities against lots of other people, but specifically women and children. They were a brutal group of people, and God had given them 300 years to repent, but they did not change. And so God is basically coming through to protect other people by wiping out these ancient terrorists. And then thirdly, this was an act of justice, not imperialism. Notice what God said. He said, don't take anything. 
This is an act of justice. Uh, the way that other nations would do this is they would take the king alive and they would take the king alive to, for bragging rights. Hey, look, we got his king. We're more powerful than him. And then they're going to parade the king around the village just to brag about how powerful they are. God says, I don't want you to do that. Don't brag about this. Just defeat them. Uh, other nations would take the best of the spoil for themselves. God says, don't do that. Kill the spoil. Don't take anything. Right? This is not an act of imperialism. It's an act of justice. So, look at what God commanded, and then yet look at what happens in verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havala as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and all of the fat, fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Did you see what Saul did? God's command was clear. Don't take anything. Just kill the army. And yet Saul's response is he takes the king for bragging rights. He takes the best of the spoil for themselves And the people of Israel who have so desperately wanted a king like all the other nations, now they finally have a king like all the other nations. He has his ears stopped up to the commands of God, and he's now just in it for his own power and victory. So notice what happens in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Literally, he wept before the Lord, because Samuel truly loved Saul. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And I want you to just listen to this interaction carefully. Listen to what's happening in the life of Saul. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. What's happening? He's literally setting up monuments, statues, to his own victory and glory. And he passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. Look at this. And Saul said to him, Blessed be your Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. You can almost hear his anger in his voice. Just would you shut up for a second and focus on yourself, is what Samuel is saying. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. The second big character flaw that we see in Saul is his disobedience and his self-deception. Do you see what's happening in Saul? He is so deceived that when confronted by Samuel the prophet, and Samuel clearly points out ways that he has not obeyed, Saul responds with, yes, I have. All right? I mean, those of you that have little kids, like you've seen this happen, did you take the chocolate? No. It's all over your face. Right? And, and you like, it's almost humorous because you've heard of that analogy a thousand times and then it happens to you as a parent and you're just like, oh, it's a magical moment, isn't it? You expect like a double rainbow across the sky for a second. YouTube video, you can go watch this, great. You're like, this is a magical moment. My kid is literally so self-deceived, chocolate all over his face, her face. She didn't take it. This is Saul. He's almost delusional about the state of his own disobedience. Self-deception. This is when you know something about yourself, but you refuse to really know it. Tim Keller defines self-deception this way. He says, self-deception is the ability to know the truth, but not know the truth, because you don't want to know the truth. To know it and yet not know it, it is the same at the same time, because you don't want to know it. In other words, self-deception is the ability to rationalize and justify things you know are untrue or wrong. In self-deception, you always see a person see the truth, but it's too painful to hold. There are a couple techniques that we employ when you and I slip into self-deception. The first one is blame shifting. Blame shifting. Did you hear what Saul said? Verse 14, Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep? in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. A very simple question. Like, if you say you obeyed, why do I still hear sheep and oxen? Saul's response, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Have you ever confronted somebody? Maybe in uh, you and a few other people and you're concerned about them and you sit them down and you have an intervention. What's one of the first things that you see happen? Why did I? It's blame shifting and pointing the finger in all kinds of other ways. And as painful as that is to watch other people do it, it's very, very painful and hard to detect all the ways that you and I do that as well. Blame shifting. It's a really great tool to employ when you don't want to have to look at your own self. The second one that we employ is religious justification. This one in Oklahoma is really terrifying. Look at what Saul does in verse 15. Saul said, well... Yeah, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. In other words, I, I, I obeyed, but the ways I didn't obey, I had really good religious intentions behind it. We kept some of the best stuff, not for ourselves, but to sacrifice to the Lord. This is religious justification, and it's a tool that you and I employ all of the time to justify some of the things that we do. Yeah, I cut corners in my business, but I'm going to give some of that back to the church. We have all these ways of saying, well, all these other rights that I've done atone for this one wrong that I did do. Right? The third one that Saul does that you and I employ a lot is minimizing our sin. Look at Saul. He says to Samuel in verse 10, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag and the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's essentially saying, I obeyed, but you're right. There are a few ways that I didn't obey, but because I mainly obeyed, it's okay. I 98% obeyed. So the 2% doesn't count. And this is what you and I often employ. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see. That as we walk in further disobedience against the Lord, I'm talking to those of you that are followers of Jesus, the more you walk in disobedience, the more your heart grows harder and harder to what really is wrong about that thing. And the more that secret sin or that wrong thing that you do goes left unaddressed and unchecked, the easier it is to do it and the easier it is to minimize and the easier it is to justify and blame shift and point the finger and and give religious justification. And what happens over time is that you wake up like King Saul. And it doesn't just happen overnight. It's a sad and slow, gradual decline. And this is what the story is warning us about. It's not that he didn't have chances. God had sent Samuel to him every time that he sinned, and yet he would not listen to the, to the, to the ways that he was being addressed on his sin by Samuel. And here's the sad result of Saul's sin. Verse 22. Samuel said, As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The story of Saul is a tragedy because he starts out beautiful, on the rise, and it ends in a tragedy where he eventually commits suicide on the battlefield as this man eaten up with his own sin, his own ego, his own pride, his own insecurity, and you can trace it all the way back to chapter 13 where he had these little things that left unaddressed, unchecked, grew into big things, and that led to his demise. It's a sad story. Now, Here's what I want to remind you of as I wrap this up. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for you and I in 2019 because through the scriptures, God is teaching us and training us and he's even reproving us and he's even pointing out our sin to discipline us so that we could be trained to live in the way of Jesus like he has called us to live. This is not just a story about King Saul that you and I are supposed to watch as observers and go, well, that was a really sad story. This is a story that's meant to be held up as a mirror for you and I to see our own character flaws, to see our own ego and pride and insecurity and disobedience and self-deception and the things inside of us that even are secretive, that go left unaddressed, And even if people try to address you on it, you refuse to hear. This is showing you what happens to people that don't address these things. And the invitation from God is to heed the voice of people like Samuel. And it's not just Samuel confronting us. It's actually the Holy Spirit in this story coming to each of us and holding us up saying, do you see your self-deception? Do you see your disobedience? Do you see your lack of trust? Do you see your impatience? Do you see your excuse making and your blame shifting? 
I'm inviting you out of that. And the Holy Spirit, not to condemn, not to shame, but to set us free, is poking at things inside of our soul. So where do we go from here? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Listen for the bleeding sheep in your life. Not bleeding sheep, right? That'd be weird. The bleating sheep. Those things in your life that you're saying one thing, but there's evidence to the contrary. Listen to those bleeding sheep. What are those things in your life that you you want to excuse, you want to shift the blame, but it's bleating sheep and God is inviting you today. Stop and just listen to the evidence. Look at the evidence. What's really going on? The second thing is love and listen to those who confront you. One of the ways that you know you're on a path towards destruction is when you refuse to hear from people that really truly love you and they address you on your sin and you're unwilling to listen to it. One of the saddest things for me as a pastor is sitting with people and trying to urge them, hey, here's the things going on in your life. And they refuse to listen and eventually they end up walking away, not just from the church, but away from Jesus. They become like Saul. One of the things that I've told our pastors and I've told my wife is, listen, if one of our pastors addresses me on something, it is a big deal. And if I refuse to listen to one of those pastors addressing me on that, you need to be worried. If all of them are addressing me on something, you need to know that I've lost my mind and I've gone crazy. And you need to come after me. Love and listen to those that confront you because they have your interest. Sometimes they do it clunkily. Sometimes they do it not like Jesus would do it, but try to hear the truth in it. Amen?